Hello, you're very welcome to Purple Psychology Podcast. You're here with Melanie Hoskin and, as always, Dr. Nisha O'Reilly. Hello. Hi, Anisha. Very welcome today. We're talking today, we're on episode 78, and we're talking about experience versus talking. Yeah. Take okay. it away, Nisha. Okay, well, this is something I have lots of people debate with me. So, I first felt that in the school that the teachers and even the parents and the students didn't actually need to know my philosophies or my methods to experience something different. And actually it was quite interesting watching the team then take it out of that environment and into new environments and not even really realise that they had. But by creating an environment and a space where everything worked in a different way, naturally people then went on to do things differently. Mm. And the reality was, was that many of our students only spent an hour a week with us whereas they spent 35 hours a week in school. But they could do an hour with us on one subject and it would impact all of their subjects. Mm. And so it was this whole idea that you could take someone from the perfect environment and make them experience something different and feel different about themselves and work in a different way because we were teaching in forward learning styles all the, all the, the time there, that they would then take that skill set and that way of functioning and take it out to the non-perfect environment and do just as well with it. So, okay. so, so for me, the way to create generational long-term change is not in talking. And this is something that people kind of debate with me a lot because they want me to do to go on the speaker circuit at one stage and to be a public speaker mm. and to sort of tell my sob story of how I became a successful dyslexic. And I haven't wanted to do that because when I was studying at one stage, I read Susan Hampshire's book, which had, um, it was Every Letter Counts, and it has a huge amount of interviews of famous people in it. There was everybody from uh, Cher to Michael Heseltine to um, Steve Redgrave, the rower. And there's a huge amount about Jamie Oliver being dyslexic. There's always a list of famous dyslexic people like Leonardo da Vinci, Einstein, even W.B. Yeats. But yet, like, there might have been some excuse for when I was younger for people going, oh, she has dyslexia, she won't do anything. And me going and doing all my education, basically, despite them, because they told me I couldn't. But now, even still, when someone's diagnosed with dyslexia, we don't expect them to go on and do great things or to be academic. Whereas I kind of feel, one of the reasons I started working with business people was I felt that if they had a different experience, that they would bring a different experience to their children as well. And in fact, one parent gave me this quote, which I think is really cool, which is... Um, your work is key and unlocks a person's potential, which makes them feel worthy and stops them inflicting damage on the next generation. Right? I wasn't quite thinking about it in those terms. Mm. But I was thinking that if you had a different experience in the business environment, you would not only treat your employees differently in what you would expect from them and the sort of environment that you would create, a very similar environment to my school in one that everyone could work well in, whether it was their personality or their learning style or whatever it was. Mm. But then you would also take that back home with your own children mm. and that would have a spin-on effect. So I don't believe that the likes of TED Talks actually change the world. Mm. Um, and a really key part for this for me is that all auditory people are kinesthetic and that means that they not only need to listen to something, they need to feel something. So you're automatically not necessarily feeling or experiencing something by listening. And that's why just listening in school doesn't work. Mm. And that's the biggest problem for Ireland because 
the biggest percentage of our students in the classrooms are auditory and kinesthetic. And from a very young age, when you go in, the two things, like I remember the Irish phrase, you maybe you can, but it's sit down and shut up, <laughs> you know. And, and that's essentially yeah. both, your, both learning styles hammered. And the only time they actually feel comfortable is when they go out to the school playground and they make huge amounts of noise. Because if you go to any town in Ireland and listen to it at break time, there's just kids screaming mm. and running round and round and round in circles. And this is why they're doing it, because they haven't had to sit down and shut up. And also, mm. if you watch people picking up their kids from school, you'll watch them. There's the motor mouth ones who've kept it in all day and they just they just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk without even breathing for about 10 minutes and then finally they've got it all out of their system mm. you know so but so for me fundamentally just talking and doing talks like doing a podcast or me doing a talk is about me trying to explain to people how I think differently but I don't expect that to actually have long-term change I think you have to experience something and because you've experienced it and it's been different and you've really felt that and it's kind of in your cell memory almost, mm. then you'll take it on and you'll make other people experience something different. But is it not a process of um, awareness in terms of when, when somebody's talking, say, for example, a TED Talk, and they might be talking about something that resonates with you? Um, it's not going to change the world, but it might it, it might trigger something in you to go and see further about, uh, say, something that the if you are dyslexic and uh, you feel that you can't achieve things, and somebody's talking about, well, I'm actually a dyslexic, and I went, I experienced these things in my past, and I felt that I couldn't uh, achieve anything, but then I did. You know, would that not kind of maybe set set a light bulb moment in somebody to think, well, I'm actually going to give that a go as well, or I'm going to... I don't know. It, it, I, for me, awareness is not change. I, I, and I, I think that's the, the big crux of it. But we, it... We, spend, we spend far too much time creating talks and creating awareness and creating articles and not really any actions. Actions speak so much louder than words. But, I mean, obviously you can't stay in a perpetual state of awareness without it developing into actions, though. Well, I think if we had, maybe the school system might have changed. Okay, well, you're, I think you're talking about a big machine there. I'm talking more on a personal level. But, but it doesn't have to for... be a big machine. That's the thing that I've proven. Like, all, all of the teachers who've left me, who've gone back out into the education environment, there's one in particular story that I can think of. And all of the parents arrived into that school... Um, and asked why their students were doing so well in, in language class um, and they weren't able to do well in English um, because of that, that particular teacher was doing amazing things and could she please take them for their English class as well. Hmm. And like these, they were actually studying a non-English subject and doing really well in it despite being dyslexic just because of the way that it was taught. So for me, like every teacher is in, in charge of their own room and can make an impact. Mm. And, I, and I think that that's one of the, the biggest problems with changing the education system is the fact that people don't realise that each cog in the machine is actually the one impacting it and the one making the change, but that it's all those actions. It's, it's, not, it's not a talking shop. Mm. Like you can have all the policies and all the talks and all of the in-service days, but unless someone has actually experienced something being different and really has an expectation because of that experience, that they can then walk back into that room 
and, and recreate it. Mm. Okay. Don't you think that there's a place, though, for both? Obviously, experience is, is fundamentally the, the, the uh, learning curve and the action. But is, is there not a place for, 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 for both? Do people respond better to talking than experience sometimes? I, I don't think so. And I think when I set up my own training, I, I, there, was, there, was, there was a huge experience part to the training part of it where they had mm. to actually experience something and actually recreate it in groups. Um, so it was an experience of a day where they took something on and then and I had balanced the team and brought all sorts of different people with different experiences into the room um, so that they could all share it with each other so I was already creating an experience even from that so so no I, 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 mm. I think we just spend too much time talking and too much time not experiencing things and that that's not going to change anything I think that's one of the keys to moving forward is, is realising that you really have to create experiences for people. And you have to get people to share the experiences that they've had and to actually bring that to everybody. Mm. That that's what the key is. Mm. Because there's an extraordinary amount of people with an extraordinary amount of experiences within the education system, but they're not sharing them. Okay. And they're not bringing themselves to the table. Why aren't they doing that, do you think? Because they haven't been empowered to do that right. or encouraged to do that. Right. So they've been stunted, so to speak. Yeah. They're too afraid to be themselves. Okay. And maybe there isn't the arena there to teach in the way they want to. Yeah, but I, I still think that they should be brave enough that, it, that every person's in charge of their own room. And at the end of the day, what the parents and what the other people mm. um, in the system are going to look at is your results. Mm. That's... And, and that's the great thing about education, because it is very results-driven. Mm. And so once you can recreate those results, and um, no one's really going to question too much how you've done it. Okay. At the, at the end of the day. So you reckon this would work for everybody? Yes, I do. I, I really do. But I, but I do think it's going to be a big mindset shift that, you, that, that it is experiences that you're creating and that those experiences, that that's what you're bringing into the room. And you reckon it's lack of experiences or not an inability, but uh, what would you call it, a um, resistance to share experiences uh, result in more talking activities? Yeah, I, I, I suppose. I don't know if there's a lack of experiences. I do know that I, I would have hired people and still do that are maybe a little bit older and have maybe done a little bit more. I'm not looking for people straight out of school who've just gone into a college environment. But then I think there's an awful lot of people who've even done that. Like, it can be very simple things. Like, like one of my teachers had done a whole project away in Africa doing photography. You know, it's, it's extraordinary, or it's extraordinary what, what interests people have and what they're doing outside, and they're not bringing any of that in. They're not bringing themselves. Mm. They're afraid to bring themselves in mm. and, and to be themselves. Okay. Um, we spend far too much time hiding us. Okay. In terms of when you when you were talking earlier about you know when when somebody's uh, diagnosed as dyslex dyslexic, yeah, there's um, automatically a lot of people's expectation on them drops that they they assume that these people aren't going to do well. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that assumption is there? What do you think the perception 
it, it must be based on ignorance for a start. I don't know if it's based on ignorance. Um, but if, I mean, if people don't have a good understanding of what dyslexia is... I don't know if it's understanding. I think they just realise... They just think that everything's going to be so much harder and that you're not going to be able to do certain things. But some of this is wrapped up because it's hereditary and the family haven't done certain things. So funnily enough, when I was in the hairdresser this week, we go back to the hairdressers mm. again, because there's somebody in there that I, I've been quite drawn to for a while. And it turns out that her father um, is dyslexic. And so is she. Mm. And... He thought himself to read and forced himself to read. And he actually went on to have um, a position as a mayor. Mm. Um, and he was a big sort of advocate for the, the family still reading and mm. you still educating yourself. And he really kind of pushed the kids to do that. Mm. Um, and even though it was very hard for him to do. And it's one of the first times I've heard somebody with dyslexia say this to me, which is that I read better because I do read. So I read and write every day because I don't do it naturally. Mm. I do it by... Um, repetition and practice so mm. if I stop doing it it's much worse mm. um, and I'm, I'm I talk about sort of seesaw learning where mm. you stop doing things during the summer and you start at rock bottom in September and so mm. on so so she said that to me you know I, I force myself to read all the time and I've especially I've got my grad show coming up now for my hairdressing mm. and I've got to do a presentation and I won't be able to speak well at my presentation unless I'm reading because I don't have the vocabulary so a lot of dyslexic people talk about things and things stuff and yoke they mm. can have very poor vocabulary because they don't read and they're not very mm. good at expressing themselves mm. so she's forcing herself to read at the moment so that she can do a better presentation but the reason she's doing that is because her dad sort of had a level of expectation in the household because mm. he had a level of expectation of himself to do well mm. but that's very unusual in dyslexic parents because usually what they'll say to you is oh well I did very well to despite it I went out and I had my own business or I made lots of money or I did so and so in life and I I did fine to spite it all, you know, mm. but it's, I did fine to spite education, mm. right? So there's no expectation of education and there is an expectation that you're going to have to read books or mm. that you're going to be good at that or you're going to be mm. able to do a presentation and so on. So yeah. it's, it's so, so some of it's actually from the family blueprint mm -hmm. and then the rest of it is from the school system. Right. And you put the two together and nobody's really expected to do well, despite how many... So that's, again, that's experience. But like I mean, that created a different experience in the household. Right, and if, if you have a, a child that's diagnosed with dyslexia and the parents aren't dyslexic, or they don't know anything about dyslexia, well, how it do usually, they... Well, it usually falls very... It, it, it falls... It, it, it'll occasionally skip one generation, mm. maybe, but there'll still be other people in the family very closely linked. Okay. Like, it's, it's, it, 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 fall, it follows a very close line always okay. and if you have one set of literacy or learning difficulties in the house you're more common to have other ones as well so so it, it's it's not like it's not a bolt of lightning for people so things can be passed down to children that will be negative yes based on the experiences of the parents very much so we have a whole educational blueprint which is based on two things it's based on the family's blueprint and it's based on the school's blueprint Okay. And and each teacher in the room has an educational blueprint passed on from their family as well. Yeah. So how would a, a school react to a child whose parents are dyslexic but hadn't achieved and had brought that experience with them? How would the school support the child then? Does the child have any kind of um, support 
I don't know. I've, I've watched it go two ways. I've watched the family expect the kids to be able to do everything that they've never done, mm. which is huge pressure, or to not expect them to be able to do anything, or to sort of say, oh, well, sure, they, they won't do very well. Mm. Um, so I don't ultimately feel that we expect people to do well in education or to like learning because they're dyslexic. Mm. I suppose even, you know, when, when kids are going on to, to college or wherever, you know, uh, even if they're not uh, dyslexic, the, the first thing they're told is, you know, it's very hard. <laughs> <laughs> they're not told it's a great experience or they're, just, they're told that they have to knuckle down and kind of forget all other aspects of their life. And Yeah, well, that, that, yeah, well, you get that, that doesn't work. Uh, well, it doesn't, it doesn't pan out that way, but <laughs> that's what they're kind of told. Okay. And do you want to go anywhere else on this, Nisha? No, we'll stop. We'll stop there. Okay, very good. All right, thanks very much. Uh, you're talking to Melanie Hoskin and Nisha, Dr. Nisha O'Reilly on the Purple Psychology, Psychology. Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank Bye. you.